Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to This is Civity Radio Show. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity helps people in communities build a culture of respect and empathy across difference, and our interviews explore how people across the country and world are doing this in their communities. Today, we welcome Stephanie Lepp, artist, strategist, and producer and host of The Reckonings podcast, which explores how we change hearts and minds, often by recognizing and transforming our own worldviews, assumptions, and biases meaning how we actually change. Stephanie, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Gina. So first, I'd like to talk about, um, well, I'd like to talk about you a little bit and then get into sort of the Reckonings podcast. But tell me a little bit about you and why you are drawn to work that connects people across difference or that explores people's transformations. It really came from being involved in different, you know, social issues and social change, you know, whether it was, you know, you know, in, in advocacy while I was in college or, what, you know, and, and the question would always come up for me, you know, are we changing anyone? You know, am I actually changing anyone's mind on climate change or minimum wage laws or whatever issue I happened to be focused on at the time? Which then, of course, begs the question, you know, how, how do people actually change their hearts and minds? And and that just became kind of a fascination of mine. And I, I used to keep an extremely um, unscientific uh, list <laughs> of the things that I thought, you know, radically transformed people. You know, so near-death experiences, uh, psychedelic experiences, uh, falling in love. Oh, wow. Um, you know, um, uh, rarely, but sometimes, but very, very rarely, information, you know, uh, certainly something that doesn't change people's minds is being told to change their minds. So, but anyway, so this, this highly unscientific exploration of mine, I finally realized might be fun to manifest in the form of stories yeah, as a podcast. And so I launched Reckonings, which, you know, c- comes, comes from this idea that, that, you know, that change out there in the world, you know, happens in here, happens inside of us, inside of people. And uh, and the show has featured people who've made all kinds of transformative change, you know, so anything yeah. from, you know, anyone from a, you know, a deeply conservative congressman who made a, um, a pretty dramatic shift on climate change, all the way to, um, you know, a, a white supremacist who managed to transcend a life of hate and become a force for nonviolence. Um, most recently featured a, this is going to sound heavy, but it's a, most recently featured a, a perpetrator and survivor of sexual assault who wow. managed to work through it, managed to work through it using restorative justice. And it's, it's actually, I mean, it, it, all of it gets into the heavy stuff, but in a way that's hopeful and transcendent and gives us a way out through someone's own transformation around that, you know, that thing. And so, so yeah, so it's been a, a you know, a diverse cast of characters, but the through line is, is an exploration of this, of this question, you know, how, how do people change? 
Yeah, no, and it's such an, I mean, clearly, obviously, this is something more and more people are thinking about as we become more and more polarized and dig in more and more because the more we dig in, the less we're willing to change. I'm curious, I want to talk about the people you have on and that and that question, but I do want to get back to why do you think you were drawn to things like this, um, the Reckonings podcast, and before you decided to sort of codify it into a podcast? What what about what is it about you that that drew you to these things, or your life experience, or your own struggle to transform yourself? Um, I yeah, I think I just I guess it was just kind of a critical eye that I brought to I bring in my life and as I brought it to, you know, my attempts at social change, you know, I, I, ver- I, I, I very much remember, I remember one of the first rallies or kind of pro- I went to in college, it was um, protesting, uh, I was a freshman in college and it was protesting the logging of the redwood trees in Northern California and yeah. I remember we went to a city council hearing um, in Mendocino, uh, and you know, the, it was like the Redwood Action Team um, at my college, and we, the people who spoke, well, I, I noticed two things that um, that struck me. One was, you know, so the people that spoke were um, from our team. You know, were, were kind of, you know, kind of detailing the, the the endangered species that were going to die. You know, talking about the salamander and the you know, whatever it was, the species that were that were endangered by logging the redwoods, and I was just looking at the city council members, and I could tell that this was not it, it was not, perhaps not new. It was not information they didn't know. It wasn't moving them. It wasn't like speaking to whatever their interests were. So yeah. my first thing was like, well, I don't think our this way is working, and therefore, what would work? You know, what what actually would move them yeah. you know, to consider a different approach? you know, to stewarding the, the, the redwoods. So, so, so that, that, it, was, it was just, I guess, yeah, a critical eye. It was something I noticed. The second observation I made was that the people who were, quote, on the other side of this issue looked like pretty humble people. I mean, these were people who, you know, are, you know, log, you know, are, it's their job to cut trees. That's what they do for a living. And, and it, that just, that confused me. It's like, I don't think I want to be on the opposite side as those people. I think I want to be on the same team as those people and the trees. So, you know, something is wrong with this picture. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, what was it about me? I don't know. But those are just two observations I made. And I think that has just fueled, you know, a, I guess, the, yeah, this ever-present question for me of, yeah. <laughs> of yeah, of how how of how people change, and really, of, of really, it's it's the intersection between personal and social change. And mm-hmm. I didn't, I you know, it was something I was interested in, but I didn't really know what to, you know, what, what what's the Google search term for that, like worldview transformation. <laughs> I mean, I tried googling about it or learning about it, but a lot of what's out there is, you know, about how people change is behavioral economics, which is like how do you get people to brush their teeth more often, not how do people radically shift their views on abortion and gun control. So it was something that, you know, I, it's been kind of like a percolating interest and after enough, you know, just ha- sitting with it and not really finding much about it, I decided I might as well just ask people who've made those kinds of changes, you know, how, how did that happen for you? 
That's amazing. And it's, it's, um, I'm so, thank you for sharing that story. It's slightly different, but for me, uh, because I'm also interested in, in bringing people together, maybe in a different way, but helping people talk to each other and helping understand what drives people and how to speak other, you know, different languages in that way. And I remember being a very, maybe two and a half, three, it's one of my earliest memories. We were walking into the grocery store. I was with my mom and there was, you know, what I now know to be a homeless man, but there was a guy sitting on the cement next to the entry and we walked by and he smiled at me and he seemed so friendly. I mean, you know, he just seemed so sweet. He had a nice aura about him. And I remember I smiled back and my mom like yanked me away and rushed me into the, and I, and I, and, and your story sort of reminds me of the fact that I think there are many people out there who have that instinct to look around and say, Hey, wait, something's not right. But I think we societally are sometimes programmed or conditioned to set that aside for whatever's going on or not. But it, it, it feels that maybe that's not a, um, that that's something that might be a through line for people, but it's so wonderful. And I just love that you stopped and really noticed and decided to take it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I love your story too, because it's just, it's like, it, the instinct is there, yeah. you know, the instinct is there. And then it's really like someone else who has to say, you know, like your mom in this case, like, no, you know, but like the instinct is there. Yeah. To connect or to whatever. Exactly. And so, so what's mm-hmm. beautiful is that you, I mean, I mean, the stories you seek out are very relevant, current, uh, wedge, big pieces of our, of our discourse and and you and you're really exploring these transformations with people who've made very large movements. You know, you've shared some snippets with me, and so I'd love to play one. I, I I'd like to play to start with the defection of the Roger Ailes warrior. So I I want to play the clip yeah. that you shared with me. But do you want to set that up for us before I hit play? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So this episode. So this 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 is a story of a young man named Joe Lindsley, who was the protege of the late Fox News chairman, Roger Ailes. And Joe became very close with Roger and his wife, Elizabeth. He became almost like a surrogate son to them and, you know, and lived with them for a while and, you know, and, and, and had a reckoning and, 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 and ended up making, you know, a, a pretty dramatic departure from his relationship with Roger Ailes. Um, but Joe is kind of this incredible window into because of his, his the, the the close relationship he had with Roger and his wife. Kind of he's kind of this window into you know the the motivations and desires and, um, and psychology that drives Fox News, mm-hmm. and kind of a window into what it can take to shift that psychology. Um, and early on in their relationship, Roger Ailes told. Joe's dad that he had never met anyone more like him than Joe. So, you know, so this is this is Roger Ailes seeing this young man Joe is, is like very similar to him and Joe had never really understood why that was. And so in this 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 clip where we we're going to hear Joe kind of after he's already made his departure from, you know, from his relationship with the Ailes kind of looking back and reflecting on why Roger said he never met anyone more like him than Joe. Okay, great. All right, so here's the clip. At that point, I had never taken the time to examine why it was that Ailes said he had never met anyone more like him than me. 
All day, you can surround yourself with your enemies, perceive the real, and, and that keeps you occupied. Everything is, a, is an occasion for a, a crisis, a confrontation, an argument. We, we could have said around us, okay, we don't like Obama's policies. We think they're very bad. But instead, Obama it was, uh, he thought he was evil and conniving and was going to become a tyrant who would never give him power. And, 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 and it made us feel like heroes. It gave an importance to our lives. You know, I mean, everything was tinged by, oh, you know, the potential threats. I mean, even when Ailes and his family and I were at the Olive Garden, you know, which we enjoyed because it was all you can eat breadsticks, uh, you know, we assumed that, you know, uh, Frank and Irma at the table next door might be listening to us, you know, to, to or might be assassins. My whole idea of journalism was, was couched in confrontation. You know, everything was a, was a battle between, you know, what we saw as good and what we saw as evil. Because that's how we saw the whole world. I knew, I knew there was something missing. You know, I, I knew that, this, that the course that Ailes and I were on was not, you know, I mean, it seemed glorious, but deep down we knew that there was, there was this isolation and sadness. I mean, that's part of the reason why, you know, you make the president out to be, you know, this, you know, this sinister, you know, uh, figure out of a James Bond, you know, story, because you can focus on that rather than on your own unhappiness. And so you, you fill your life with this extra drama and activity so you don't have to think about the other, or think about or address the unhappiness. That, that sadness, uh, it, become, it, 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 it has a power over you when you don't address it and just acknowledge it. I realize that this is the deepest way how Ailes and I were most alike. I felt very close to God in that moment when I just yelled. While it might seem sort of sacrilegious, that was my soul being somehow forcing its way into honesty. So thank you so much for sharing that clip. Um, what really strikes me about it is, one, the transformation, the fact that this person was able to identify that sadness, but two, but two, that someone who has not yet made a transformation or is unwilling, or basically all of us, every single human being on earth, we are all unwilling to face, I, I, well, I would argue that we are all fairly unwilling to face whether or not we're unhappy or to admit that we're wrong or to admit that our worldview might not be quite right. And so... Uh, those are the two things that really strike me is here's someone who's really done some work, as as you say, and, and has explored this and, and tried to push through something. And then to the larger idea of how do we help everybody, including ourselves, do this as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, just what, yeah, what, 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 what helps there is to kind of just remember, like he he actually ha they actually had in their own like twisted way you know good intentions 
You know, they, like he says, you know, um, I mean, he, you know, like we, you know, we we could have sat around and said, you know, we didn't like Obama's policies, but instead he was a tyrant, you know, who would never give up power. And and it made us feel like heroes and and it gave an importance to our lives. And, and, you know, I mean, in a way, it's like that, 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 that's both a problem, but, and, you know, that that's also, you know, what if the problem and the solution is that we want to be heroes? You know, what if this impulse to be heroic, you know, to do something meaningful, to save our country, you know, is actually a positive impulse that is just, you know, very, in, in this case, and in actually in many cases, you know, very woefully mis, misdirected. You know, because there are so many heroic things that need to be done. If what you want to do is, is something meaningful and helpful, you know, we can definitely give you a way to do that. So... The other, yeah, the other kind of helpful piece to remember is that, like, what drove him to even do all of these things are actually impulses that might, you know, prove very helpful if, 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 if redirected, you know, if only redirected. That's so insightful. That is so insightful. I think about this with, I think, I think, you know, we all have relatives who disagree with us politically or in some way. And I, of course, think of my dad, who, who, whom I am exactly alike and love, and we just disagree politically. But he's not an evil person with bad intent. Like, he, his, his beliefs come from a place where he, do, he does think he's being helpful, and he, thinks, uh-huh. he, and he thinks his way of life or worldview is being challenged, and he thinks there's something worth preserving. You know, and, and he, yeah, and, and um, re- really, I, I, early on, I, I, I worked to understand and accept that, but it's, it's absolutely true. No one's evil. We all want to, we all want to be. Fewer people, fewer, fewer, yeah. And yeah, and if you want to understand people probably making the assumption that they have reasons for doing whatever they're doing is is probably a helpful assumption to make. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's not a courtesy we give uh, in society. Um, It's, oh, you disagree with me. You must be evil. You must, you know, uh, you're supposed to be my enemy rather than, oh, okay, we both want the same thing. We're just looking at how to get there very differently. Um, mm-hmm. which I think is hard for us. So, so tell me, so there's this story and what has this, as you've been exploring these stories and talking with these people, mm-hmm. what has this done for you or uh, what's, how have you responded to this experience? Yeah, this has been really, this has been such a wild ride for me. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I end up listening to these people for hours. You know, and this is not just the hours I spend interviewing them. It's the hours I spent with the tape. And, and, and a lot of these folks are people who, you know, if I met them at a dinner party or some, you know, you know, like I, within the first couple of minutes, I might just kind of stand up and walk away. Right. You know, I, like I, these are people who, yeah, a lot of them are very different from me still, even after, you know, after their transformation. So it's just, it's been this. You know, but in order for me to do my job here, I actually have to just listen. So I can just surrender any any ideas about like whether I would, you know, whether I agree with you or not. Like I can just let go of any, you know, anything I might kind of retort or because my job here is to just sit here and actually really, really, really try to understand your story because that's the only way I'm going to be able to make a good episode. So, um. Yeah, that's been, it's been kind of a blessing. It's like, uh, it's like I call it an interview, but what, what it really is, is like me just deeply listening to another person <laughs> tell their story in a way that I, you know, I don't always do. 
Um, but it is certainly enhanced by, you know, it has, it has enhanced my capacity to do that. It has enhanced my, certainly, you know, what we were just talking about, you know, assuming that people have reasons for doing what they're doing. Like it is, you know, I'm now wandering through the world with more of an assumption, you know, that people are doing things for a reason I may not know, but that I can probably relate to, you know, I, pro- I, I may not be able to relate to what they're doing or have compassion for what they're doing, but I can probably relate to why they're doing it. And that, that assumption, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it just, it probably gives, you know, gives some peace of mind now in this political moment, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, yeah, it, 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 I guess it creates, it, well, peace of mind and just, I would say probably creates more kind of spaciousness or possibility, you know, when I, when I encounter a person, like there are more places the conversation can go because I've, I've let, I, 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 there's more room for them to be somewhat, you know, you know, someone who I can probably somehow relate to, even if I don't see it at first, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah. very that's a very civity concept. The idea of allowing space for someone to be who they are and tell their story without having to necessarily agree, but to be generous to it or to be open yeah. to yeah yeah. And I really yeah. one thing I really appreciate about the way you approach your work, and I, I, I in it, you know, at civity we talk about it slightly differently, but I, I think it's very aligned. When you and you mentioned it just a second ago, the concept of what versus why or what and why uh-huh. I guess is a better way to say it and uh-huh. the uh-huh. idea the idea that it is okay to have comp- I mean you're giving yourself permission and by extension I would say the listener permission to be okay with having compassion for the why without having to accept or have compassion for the what and that's uh-huh. another thing I think we as a society can can name more and can be more aware of I think mm-hmm yeah. What, yeah. what brought you there? What, what helped you separate those two, the what and the why? Uh, I think it actually happened in a, in a specific episode. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the first, not the only, but the first <laughs> white, former white supremacist I, yeah. I interviewed, and I was wondering, why am I able to do this? Why am I able to sit here and listen to this person? Um, and um, yeah, I'm Jewish, and so it was also personally challenging. And I just was like, "What? What is? What is allowing me to do this?" And I, I realized, you know, as he told his story, it's because I can. I can relate to why he did what he... I can understand. I can find some compassion for why he did what he did. Yeah. You know, I still abhor what he did. Yeah. I. It, it, was, it was in that episode, I think, um, because that was just a, per, a personally challenging one for me um, that that became more... That became clear. Well, we have uh, that that clip. I have that queued up. So why don't I go ahead and play it so that we can all get a sense of potentially what you were experiencing as you talked with this person. And so the uh, this this is uh, Frank, and as you said, he was uh, 
a neo-Nazi. And oh, and I'm so sorry. This yeah. isn't Frank. This is is this is what's his name? Yeah, this is Frank. Oh, oh Frank, this sorry. Is the second, this is the second white supremacist. Oh, this is there your second a, white supremacist. Yes, he was a white supremacist. He and at one point he he gets out of jail. You know, he can't get a job. He has you know swastika tattoos all over him. But through a friend, he manages to get a gig at a trade show with a Jewish antique dealer. And the Jewish antique dealer knows that Frank is a neo-Nazi, but he says, you know, he, he doesn't care what Frank believes as long as he doesn't break his furniture. You know? so, <laughs> so this 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 clip picks up after Frank kind of d- does this gig at this trade show with, with this Jewish antique dealer. Okay, here we go. He gave me a ride home that night. And when he gave me the ride home, and then as he's dropping me off, he just goes, hey, what do you do for a living? And I said, I don't do anything. He goes, well, why don't you come work for me? And I'm looking down, I have my Doc Martens on my red laces, which meant I'm a neo-Nazi. And I keep looking down at the boots as he's talking to me, this Jewish man. And I'm trying to hide the boots underneath the under part of the seat. I'm just like looking at him like, thank God this human being is in my life. It's fear. I was full of fear. I was full of absolute fear uh, for everything. And so I got with a group of people who also were fear, fearful people. They're fearful they're losing their homeland or going to lose their women to the black man. I mean, you name it. And my fear I felt made me weak. And so what they did is they turned my fear into an anger. And they made it to where it was a, a, just my strong point now. I was completely embarrassed of my beliefs. I was wrong, and I've been wrong for the last seven years of my life. I've been completely wrong. This is all bullshit. I believed in something I was willing to die and kill for, something that is bullshit. I had so much seniority in this group. That seniority was important to me because I had nothing in this world. Like I cut everything and everybody that was not part of the movement out of my life. So that's all I have. So the car ride's coming to an end and he drops me off. And he just goes, I'll see you Monday, right? my pay and I, I went home and I could not wait to get home and get them boots off my feet. Like my whole image of me is gone and I got to build something new. That is such a powerful moment and it it was completely internal for him. Yeah. I just... It, I, 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 it, you often think about like when we face, when we face that which we thought was evil or other and, and recognize humanity, it's, it's powerful, but it's such a rare occurrence that, 
that we get to hear someone's story about that. And that's, that's a pretty special moment. So I thank you for sharing it. Um, is there, is yeah. there any, anything you'd like to share about, about your response to it? Yeah. So yeah, one, one, you know, my, I mentioned that, you know, my, I have this unscientific list of things I thought radically transformed people, right. you know, psychedelics, near-death experiences. I mean, something that, that list has, you know, certainly been, you know, <laughs> updated. <laughs> Um, but one thing that was not on my original list that comes up with Frank, uh, as well as you know many many other other episodes, is this is this which is very civity, is this kind of seeing the other yes. the other you know more clearly you know the, 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 this experience of really just bearing witness to whoever it is that you dehumanize in some way or feel that you can't relate to, and Frank's transformation process actually started in jail when he started playing sports with black people, black inmates, and, yeah. and, and started getting to know black people. And it was kind of coming from that experience and the confusion that that brought. was like, wait, what? Like, black people are okay and cool and fun and I'm <laughs> kind of making friends with it. It was coming from that, that he had this experience, you know, of, of, of kindness from a Jewish person and that, that kind of just, you know, that kind of just Field the deal for you know just like that and and um and just the, the fact it just kind of showed him the bankruptcy really of 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 the ideology and the fact that you know all it can take to transform us you know to to evolve us is is seeing each other more clearly you know I I find that tremendously hopeful yeah. you know because. Certainly, that's not all, that's not always easy, you know. Especially if we've built up a lot of assumptions about, you know, about about whoever we other. But um, but 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 you know, it's it's imminently the ability to kind of see each other more clearly, you know, is imminently available to everyone. That's so true, and you're right. That's absolutely civity with sitting down and in in a semi-structured environment getting to know someone and and making that space you do see each other more clearly or you see someone as human um so i recently you're talking about sort of the scientific and unscientific sides of this and and so i i recently completed a doctorate and it was on this type of work of engaging across difference and oh wow yes and so i was able to find some some science or so you know about it and um, one study that I really relied on, it was a framework really, um, was, is called this framework for individual diversity development. And it basically shows that we, you know, we move along a spectrum of, you know, either we don't know about it or we other it. And then there's a point where we become open to, Hey, that person was nice. Or, Hey, all of us, it's, it's basically a teeny tiny shift where we start to see someone as human. And, and once we tip over into that space and it's, then it becomes very difficult to backtrack. Um, and so I, I love that framework because it really helped, it really helped define or, or help me discuss that moment where we start to become open to that idea and everything that that might do for us. And so in, in your context, it's the individual transforming. And in my context, it's people beginning to speak to each other and work together, but, but it's, it's the same moment, you know, Uh uh and I, and I love that. Yeah. Yeah. With many of your guests, how do you find your guests or how, how do you go about identifying, finding, uh, convincing your guests to, to speak with you? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, well, I have a never-ending list of <laughs> stories <laughs> I want. Um, it just gets longer and longer all the time. But it's really just, it's really, the key thing is just knowing what I'm looking for. You know, so for this last episode, I knew I wanted a perpetrator and a survivor of some kind of sexual misconduct, some kind of, you know, sexual harm, mm -hmm. who managed to work through it using restorative justice. I knew I wanted that, and I, I, I mean, I can tell you why I wanted that. I mean, as I, I wanted to show what it, what, it, what it might look like to heal through sexual harm. We don't, you know, we don't really know what it could look like. We mm -hmm. don't really, and, and I wanted to hear what it sounds like for, you know, what does it sound like for a perpetrator to take responsibility for sexual abuse? Like, we don't really know. We don't hear, we don't hear that. You know, yeah. what does it sound like for a survivor to get her needs met? We don't, we're not hearing much of that either, you know? So, I knew I wanted that, and then when it, when you know, once I know what I'm looking for, then it just becomes a matter of finding it, and that can be, you know, go, like I, in this case, you know, talking to restorative justice practitioners, mm -hmm. talking to academics who who research restorative justice, you know, going to organizations that, you know, practice or you know do advocacy around. Um, restorative justice or do advocacy around, you know, sexual sexual assault. So it's 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 really the the key thing is to know what I'm looking for and then and then it's just a matter of, you know, what organizations or institutions or friends or sometimes even Googling, you know, people write so much, you know, online about mm -hmm. themselves nowadays that, you know, if you Google, you know, regrets of a former white supremacist, you'll find, you know, you'll find things. So um, but yeah, it's really the key thing, knowing, knowing, knowing what, what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it just becomes kind of a, a little research. Um, and sometimes I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have exploratory. I won't, I won't know entire. I know that I, I know that the, you know, the topic I want, but I don't know exactly the angle. And so I'll just have exploratory calls with a bunch of people, um, to kind of find, find the reckoning <laughs> that I'm looking for. <laughs> Um, have you, what are some challenges you faced as you got this podcast off the ground and as you've been moving forward with it? Oh, well, uh, I, <laughs> audience and um, funding. Um, sure. Yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's actually pretty, you know, I feel like Reckonings is really kind of meeting this political moment like it it feels like that feels like it's it's meeting this moment and I you know I get extraordinary feedback from the people who managed to find it and it just it feels like it has so much potential and I would love to get it to more people who would benefit mm -hmm. from listening to it but I, that's a challenge I don't know I don't know how to get it to more people I I mean it you know grows by word of mouth I don't really have you know, really funding for market, like money, like, you know, like a marketing budget or, sure. um, so one challenge has just been how to get it to more people who would, <laughs> who would benefit from, you know, and actually this last episode is the perfect example of that. I mean, yeah, again, like we don't hear men taking responsibility for sexual abuse, partly, I mean, because they don't necessarily know how to do that. They don't know what that sounds like. Right. How would they know? They don't have models, you know, not, like, we're, we don't, we're not seeing that public figures, you know, like doing that um, and showing how to do that. And so this episode would be, I think, really helpful for, well, I could say young men, I mean, for all of us, really. And it does 
fund me out a little bit that you know that that's a challenge and yeah and then the funding pieces you know I mean that's yeah it's not as inter- it's not super interesting but I just I guess the the interesting piece is that I do yeah the show I feel like has so much more potential than I am able to kind of fulfill you know on on my own you know and I I would love to I would love to help help reckoning fulfill its potential i'd love to you know get more episodes more creatively more often like there's so many things i would love to do um and so yeah i guess the just the basic challenge of growing you know growing audience and growing team and you know growing resources in order to kind of help this help this thing fly yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and it's funny that you bring that up because I think the uh, this work of exploring personal transformation, exploring uh, accepting of the other, exploring engagement across difference, I think all of this connected work or aligned work is something that we, and I, I, I talk about societally, but I think as a society, we we don't know yet that we need this. I, I think, yeah. you know, I think we, well, of course you can talk to people, whatever, you know, it, it, we think that's just a basic, but really it's something we have to learn. We have to learn how to transform ourselves. We have to learn how to know ourselves. We have to learn yeah. how to, how to see other people as human and how to listen. And yeah. there's so many skills involved in that. And, and, um, yeah. and, and I, I'm, I, it sounds as if maybe you're coming up against similar challenges in that, oh, you know, that it's not considered a thing in the eyes of the funders yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, t- I a million percent agree with you. I think reckoning is a reckoning is a skill. You know, the yeah. skill of um, being able to see oneself clearly. You know, and 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 grow from whatever it is that we see. You know, yeah. um, I think is a is a skill. <laughs> you know, critical yeah. self reflection is a skill. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's not. It's not. You're right. It's not something that we often kind of think about or talk about as a skill. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I wanted to ask you how your work has impacted communities and the national conversation. Of course, you're still on your way into that space. But for those people who have found you and listened and reached out, what are you hearing uh, from people? Oh, yeah. Oh, I got the most, uh, I got the most <laughs> beautiful testimonials. So, I mean, one, yeah, one guy recently told, said to me that, Reckoning is what has allowed him and his wife to kind of like survive, to like make it during this time. Um, but I, yeah, I get I get really uh, um, uh, on this recent episode of restorative justice practitioner or teacher. I'm not, like emailed me to say that she's going to make the episode like a part of her curriculum for her <gasps> class. Yeah, so that's that was really cool. Um, apparently, I this show inspired a. A woman who reached out to me to run for local office. I, oh my gosh! I thought that was great. Um, yeah, it, I just yeah, I just get great kind of notes from. I wish I heard more. I would love to know more. Um, but and yeah, and I've gotten some you know from people who you know the sh- the episode was personal to actually the Franks. Um, I got a, met, a note from some the, the Frank the White Supremacist. Former yeah. White Supremacist. I got a note from someone who, yeah, someone in Sweden. You know, wow. <laughs> like okay, Sweden, who had kind of flirted with um, neo-Nazism in his youth and hadn't really kind of examined that. I guess had moved on from it, but hadn't really looked at it. And yeah. this, kind of, yeah, I guess the piece kind of moved him to take a look at that. So. 
Yeah, I hear I hear bits and pieces, and um, it's yeah, it's really it's it's really beautiful to hear that. That's wonderful. I want more. That. I want to hear more. <laughs> I want to know more. I hear yeah. that. I hear, um, you have given me one more clip that I would love to play, and and I would I, I want to hear your take as well. But I'd like to also discuss why this clip sort of or why this particular interview speaks to me uh, as a former journalist. I. Um, uh-huh. I am. I pay great attention not only to every story that I can, but also to what's going on in the industry and what's going on on social media and everything like that. And and it's so. This is an interesting one for me, and something that I relate to, and I think a lot of journalists can relate to, although they might not come to the same conclusions. Um, and also for me, and uh, I talk about this with my students. I teach journalism. The idea of objectivity versus fairness, um, uh, because a lot uh-huh. of yes, a lot of journalists think they need to be objective, and really, what we need to be is is fair. That objectivity yeah. was the method, but but yeah. objectivity as a thing has become so codified into American journalism. So I, again, I'm really excited to play this piece. But if you want to say anything before I play it, because uh, those are the things that sort of popped out to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I love that that spoke to you. Um, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll just say, you know, this, this is a journalist. Um, his name is Lewis Wallace. He was a reporter at Marketplace. You, people listening may have actually heard him on the Marketplace Morning Report <laughs> live with uh, David Brancaccio. I listen to NPR all the time. Me so too. Me too. <laughs> I, I, I certainly did. Um, and this... Um, yeah, he. This clip kind of comes right after kind of a major thing happens. I'm not gonna say what it is okay. um, to not give the story away. But he's yeah, he's basically just kind of reflecting on his on his career in journalism and how he might have you know strayed from his values in a way that made journalism vulnerable to the kinds of critiques that are now being levied against it. Yeah. All right. Well, here's the clip. Yeah. Before I started doing journalism, I was hyper aware of the power dynamics between journalists and kind of marginalized and underrepresented people, in part because that was such a strong, pronounced dynamic in coverage of trans people. But then it's really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day of doing journalism, like the tendency to kind of call people up and just like grab a quote and then go off and do your story and never talk to that person again. You know, the, the tendency to kind of be extractive in your approach to stories is like very much exacerbated by working in national media because there's less accountability. There's actually quite a bit of accountability in some ways for local reporters. They might have to face the people face-to-face that they write about. As I became a national reporter, I had kind of fallen into a pattern of making excuses for not really being in that kind of accountable relationship with an audience or especially with the most vulnerable people that I might interview or talk to, you know, Eddie Cave in Detroit. Objectivity and neutrality in some ways can be sort of a, a framework that excuses us from talking about accountability. You know, we're not accountable to anyone in particular. We're just neutral. 
you know, we're just middle of the road. We, we report the facts. But there was some kind of, there was some kind of bug in my ear that was saying, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if what you're doing is really ethical. Being a trans person coming out as queer really young, I've just always related to reality as something that I'm both participating in and responsible for changing, right? And some people would say, well, that means you shouldn't be a journalist, <laughs> you know, because you're, you're a person who wants to change reality, not just tell it. But I absolutely don't buy the argument that narrative and truth-telling is separate from the shaping of the world. There's just no way that I could separate the work of journalism from the work of, you know, either transforming or upholding the status quo. Again, what a powerful critique or discussion of journalism in the U.S., or at least mainstream journalism. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, and the concept of accountability is a very important one. And it's funny because journalists that I know, and I think it's true for many in the industry, do think that they're being accountable, but accountable to that neutrality, accountable to the neutral, not, not even neutral, but to the, to the telling of the story that people need to know. Um, and many times we don't examine our own biases and how they might inform the way we're telling the story because we think the way we're telling the story is straightforward. Um, uh-huh. You know, and, and I think, and so I, and I think uh, there are journalists who examine themselves, but I think as a whole, we're so, we, I'm still saying we, but journalists are so busy that there, that there's not time for self-examination. There's not time for this. And, uh, but, and yet it's quite important as we've come to learn. I'm glad and I don't know, relieved and impressed and that, yeah, as someone who, you said you teach journalism. I do. I do. I love my students. Yeah. I'm so glad this, this didn't scare you, that this is, you know, um, because a lot of journalists are also, I think, can, can, um, can get scared of, of kind of challenging the, you know, right now in this moment, especially, you know, it's like, can't challenge objectivity, can't challenge truth, you know, we're in this post-truth moment, you know, got to double down on (laughs) truth and objectivity, and, you know, but that's, 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 you know, that's, that's part of how we make journalism more resilient is actually by examining these criticisms and examining what might be true and, you know, or, or, or just looking at ourselves critically. Um, so I'm really glad that this one did not turn you off. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. And it, I think it's, it's interesting. I do think there are two, uh, well, there are more than two minds, but there are, there, I can feel two basic mindsets on this issue. One is, of course, we have to examine, and, and of course, this is important. And one is, heck, I'm too busy, and I'm doing my thing. I'm a journalist. I'm good. You know. So I think that I think those both exist, and sometimes they exist in the same people. Um, uh-huh. But you're right. I mean, I think with anyone, when a, when someone who ha- holds beliefs that are aligned with white supremacy hears, you know, there's going to be resistance when you have, your, yeah, whatever it is. 
whatever your worldview is, I think our initial response is always resistance. My initial response is resistance when my husband tells me I haven't done something that I haven't done that I thought I did, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, I did that. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't. Sorry. You know, it's like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I appreciate your comment, but, and I think that that, that is a very natural reaction for us, you know, for some reason. So in the few minutes we have left, um, I'm curious where Reckonings is heading for you. Yeah, so, uh, well, in the um, the immediate next place Reckonings is heading is, yeah, so I, I you know, so I have this never-ending list of, you know, episodes I would love to do, and including kind of this wish list of people I probably will never get to interview, you know, like <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Pope Francis. You never know. And, uh, you know, you never know. You know, I've been waiting for them to call me. They haven't actually called me. And so I, it strikes me, you know, what if I were, and this is actually something that I haven't told the listeners, like this is not really, well, that I'm happy to share this on Civity. Yeah, what <laughs> So it strikes me, you know, short of Mark Zuckerberg and Pope Francis calling me and telling me they want to be on the show, what if I scripted their reckonings for them? You know, what if I were to kind of imagine, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's kind of noblest self, you know, and his what he is grappling with um, in terms Ooh. of the situation Facebook finds itself in and release that and that might sound ridiculous or arrogant or challenging or I don't know but I think I'm gonna try it and um and really the like my goal like I the only my goal with this well I have a lot I could say about the goal but just to specifically the the only way that this piece would be a success for me is if it would not alienate Mark Zuckerberg, right. if he heard it. Right. So keeping that in mind, this is not parody. You know, this is actually really hard. <laughs> yeah. What could I possibly write that Mark Zuckerberg could hear and say, wow, now that is the me that I want to be, or that is the me that I am, or that is the me that is going on inside my heart that I haven't been, like, public about. Um, so I think I'm going to try that. That's such a um, fascinating... It's a completely different thing than I've done with Reckonings in the past, you know, and I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, but I do kind of know what a Reckoning sounds like, so I think that might be the next thing. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating challenge because it's difficult to know, well, one, it can come off as parody, as you said, and you could alienate, but two it's difficult to know exactly what would alienate someone. Like the truth told beautifully could also alienate someone who's not ready to hear yeah, it, you know? That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So Yeah, it's not yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not only up to you know, like it might be an impossible challenge. Um and yes, one that I still wanna try with this yeah, idea of um like what if what if if I could write something that you know, it, it's like his reaction to the social network movie. If we're just talking about Mark Zuckerberg, oh. you know, he 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 had, he had a very negative, I think, a pretty negative yes. reaction to that movie. Um, and I understand, you know, it didn't paint him in the most positive <laughs> light. You know, what could I make that would be both true and that he would both feel moved by? Yeah, that's that's maybe like a 
sliver of a Venn diagram, but like I have to kind of find that little sliver. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a fascinating challenge. Oh my goodness. Um, you also have, you have some other projects going on, the Infinite Lunchbox, Where I'm Coming From. I, I, I just wanted to explore those briefly with you and, and, and also discuss how your projects connect, how, what's sort yeah, of the through line. Okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Infinite Lunchbox is the studio, is the, is the overarching umbrella okay. for all of the work that I make. And, uh, and which is, you know, I, yes, I'm an artist. I, my, kind of the organizing principle for my work is that of a mirror. So I, I make things, uh, mostly media, like reckonings mm-hmm. and, um, and experiences, uh, like, I, like where I'm coming from, which I could talk about a little bit, but yeah, mostly media and experiences that, that hold up a mirror. Uh, yeah. that, that, that enable us to see ourselves more clearly. And I love where that um, comes from, by the way. I, as a child, also was fascinated by my lunchbox and then the picture and the picture and the picture. So I, 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 I love your title, The Infinite Lunchbox. It spoke to me oh, deeply. Oh, <laughs> Infinite Lunchbox. Infinite Lunchbox, I mean, that, that came, that's actually, it was, it was actually a lunchbox that I had when I was, you know, in second grade mm-hmm. and I had Bert and Ernie on it. And, you know, Bert was carrying a lunchbox with Bert and Ernie on it, and you know, in the in that lunchbox, Bert was carrying a lunchbox with <laughs> Bert and Ernie on it. And I was, you know, for me, I was like, "How far do the lunchboxes go?" Totally. You know, am I the lunchbox too? So that is that's where the incident lunchbox came from. And yeah, it's, it's it's nice that it's like a container, so it just contains the infinity of all of the things <laughs> that I am uh, creating or wanting to create. And um, and thus far, they haven't been actually connected it's really just been just a different work that Mm -hmm. I do but um I have been thinking about um kind of connecting it all within the context of uh themes so taking a theme like technology or like truth or like uh inequality and just producing a whole series of you know, it would be reckoning episodes and events and, you know, around that theme and mm-hmm. connecting all of the work. Um, I haven't done that yet, but that would, I think, be fun and uh, a little less schizophrenic. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and it would also just be nice to, you know, it's like, like I mean, the, the last clip we heard with Lewis, you know, journalism is huge. I mean, and, and, this, and, and we're, not, we're actually talking about truth, which right. is not just journalism, it's science. I mean, there's, so I I would love to be able to kind of instead of just taking off a little piece of truth with you know or I don't know a little piece but taking off a piece of truth with journalism kind of like doing a whole dive into the theme of truth you know with journalism with science maybe you know with all in all of the ways you know through multiple media oh, wow. Uh, wow. yeah and it does seem that your projects uh, and this may not be true but but just from my perspective and research, it seems that they all deal with revealing and exploring humanity and human motivation in whatever context it is. And so I, it felt that that, and you, you mentioned earlier that you have a, a deep interest in it. And it, I, I love that all of your work really kind of comes back to that or, or that kind of idea. Thank you. That's nice to, it's like sometimes I feel like I'm all over the place. So it's always <laughs> nice for someone else to look at it and be like, nope, you, you have a thing going on. So you have a coherent thing. 
So thank you. <laughs> so, so for people who are interested in learning more about your work, listening to Reckonings, potentially even being on the show, uh, how can people how can people find you, support you, hear you? Yeah, yeah. So great, thank you. Um, yeah, people, you can find Reckonings wherever you get your podcast. So on all the major platforms: iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. Um, you can find it on our, on the website. So that's www.reckonings.show. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash reckonings. And I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet that much, <laughs> but if you tweet at me, I'll respond to you. I'm at Steph Lepp, S-T-E-P-H-L-E-P-P. And yeah, please tune in, be in touch. Yeah, I love, I love hearing from people. It's really, like, I mean, I have this experience all the time where I'm listening to something and I'm like, oh, you know, it's a, you know, I feel so moved by it. But then it's like, oh, I don't make the time to reach out to the person. Now that I'm producing, you know, well, not, I mean, it's been a little while, but I, like, please reach out. <laughs> it's really, it's really, it really, it's, it's so, it's, first of all, it's helpful to just hear what people are feeling and, it's it's incredibly motivating. It's incredibly motivating to know that, you know, this is touching people. So, yeah, be in touch, please. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to This is Civity Radio Show. Uh, Civity helps people in communities build a culture of respect and empathy across difference. And our interviews explore how people across the country and world are doing this in their communities. Today, we've been speaking with Stephanie Lepp, artist, strategist, and producer, and host of The Reckonings Podcast, which explores how we change hearts and minds, often by recognizing and transforming our own worldviews, assumptions, and biases. In other words, how we actually change. Stephanie, it's been such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much, Gina. This was so fun. Thank you. And we will have this podcast up online and we'll talk to you next time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.